Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. And they, I don't know, three hundred fifty thousand bucks, four hundred thousand dollars in a very, very short period of time. The building and developing here. At the end, I was making a hundred thousand dollars a house. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guest, I want to mention FunNet Flip because FunNet Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on, uh, or the main two things, are the deal and the money. Uh, so if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless, and we are ready to rock here. Uh, this show's all about cutting out all that fluffy stuff and getting straight to the best real estate investing advice that will move your business forward. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, and many other Best Ever guests. And today we've got Dave Franicki. How you doing, Dave? Hi, Joe. How are you? Doing very well, my friend. Dave has over 30 years of experience in the real estate industry and in three different markets. And I'm curious to, to know how those markets were selected. One of them, where I currently live, Cincinnati. Another, Portland, Maine, and then Phoenix, Arizona, where Dave currently resides. And something just blew me away whenever I was reading your bio. Since 2008, with Dave and his team, they've partnered with several major banks in the Phoenix area, and they've helped dispose of over 900 
REO, so bank-owned properties in the greater Phoenix area with gross sales exceeding over $100 million, exceeding $100 million. So Dave's very active in the space. Lately, he's been focused on seller carry and owner financing and the benefits of, of doing that. So with that being said, Dave, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Sure. I mean, way back in the day, Joe, back where you are, I was investing in properties around the University of Cincinnati. Um, and then from that, my wife had this dream to live in Portland, Maine. So we moved there and I started uh, brokering, building and developing, did a, two or three subdivisions there. And then as the SNL crisis uh, descended upon us, then I moved on to other things and then eventually moved here to Phoenix. But through that whole tenure, whether it be rehabbing, fixing, flipping, renting, uh, developing the REO brokerage, credit repair. I've done a lot to feel like I've got a pretty rounded base of experience to work with and also having experienced the downslot of 07 as a bunch of other folks did. Uh, it's put me, I think, in a very unique position to, to be able to respond and react to where things are today, which is uh, basically safety and security is the way I look at it. It's interesting. You went from Cincinnati to Portland, Maine, what were you doing in Cincinnati? In Cincinnati, I was a landscape contractor, but then that's where I started cutting my teeth into real estate. I bought several properties around the University of Cincinnati as rentals, rehabbed them, and then eventually sold them. Okay. And you sold them to, was it investors who were doing student rentals or were they owner-occupants? Owner-occupants for the most part. I think a couple of them went straight investor. They just took over my position. That uh, most of them, you know, two of them to owner occupants, I think three others to um, investors. And how did you transition from a landscape contractor to an investor? I want to make money and I want to think smart instead of breaking my back. You know, I mean, landscape contracting was a business. We were working on some rather large projects, whether it be Wright Patterson Air Force Base or places like that. But it was a function of just following a dream, knowing that real estate was where I wanted to be. So it was more of a dream and just uh, the plan just kind of unfolded for itself. And did you, and I know we're, we're talking two different cities ago and we'll speed up to where you're at now, but I think it's going to be interesting to talk a little bit about how you began. So you saw the, the reason why you should get into investing, but how did you do it? Was it, did you save up your money for your first property and it snowballed from there? Or did you go about it a different way? No, I did it all wrong. I used credit cards and bought the properties and fixed them. Then I got in trouble. Then I went out and refinanced them. So I, I basically went into it totally the wrong way with virtually no education because there really wasn't a lot of education out there as there is today. So as a matter of just, you kept kicking the can and just keep pushing it down the road and you just figure it out as you go. And that was the, in essence, the way I did it. Again, totally wrong. When you say you bought them with credit cards and got into trouble, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you get you you buy them with a credit card. You think you're good to go, and then the, then you start looking at the monthly payments, and maybe the rentals don't the rental income doesn't come in as it should, and you think, okay, then I got to refinance. So luckily, I had good credit, and I went out and refinanced and got out of the credit card mess, and then the banks carried the paper, and and it was all good. But it was just uh, it's like a lot of people do. They just figure they can just use the traditional methods. I should have used seller financing at that time. Didn't even know the word existed. Uh, it was just blind luck and blind ignorance and just moving forward. And how many total did you acquire and then sell in Cincinnati? I think there were seven. So it wasn't a lot. It was over a three-year period. And, you know, it, I wasn't a, you know, I was a newbie. I was a young guy in my 
late 20s, early 30s, and it was just, just following a dream. And then along the way, I built my own house in Indiana. Um, you know, it was just just something to do, doing something different and basically to diversify from the back-breaking physical work of landscape contracting and, you know, running a 25-man crew. And then you went to Portland, Maine, where you said you did building, you did development. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I went to Portland, Maine and, and became an agent. And then from that, I, I saw the opportunity if Portland was evolving to develop. So uh, my wife had seen a property with 20 acres. I bought it in this case uh, with a five percent or with a two percent FHA on five acres, and the rest was my first introduction to seller financing. The seller took back paper, and then from that I started subdividing small half acre lots, and eventually I went to Maine Savings Bank, and they gave me a hundred percent financing on the balance. So eventually I put in, I think I got twenty lots out of it, and it was a very very profitable project. Plus I kept my own home there. Uh, so it was just evolving, and I used my real estate license to broker them out, sold a number of the lots to one builder, and then I got the listings on those. But I did it from A to Z. You know, the land, the engineering, subbed out the – I was my own general contractor and subbed out the roads and the utilities and just took it right through. But it was a, it was a fun pro- – really a fun, fun project, and the economy was on the upswing, which was a real benefit to me. And then from there, I moved on to several other projects, and – then, of course, the resolution trust hit, and that changed a whole lot of uh, you know, the way people looked at life at that time in the real estate business. 18% interest rates before that. You know, so it, was a, it was a fun, fun run. With that deal, you, you bought 20 acres, 2% FHA on, on five acres. The rest was seller financing. How did you approach the seller initially? Because that was you know, kind of when you were first, it sounds like when you are beginning to get into seller financing. And what was the structure with them? So basically, I said, uh, his name was Mr. McIntyre. I just said, you know, I can't, the bank won't finance this large of an acreage with a single family home. Would you consider seller financing with a lot release system? He said, yeah. So I think we plugged in a four or 5% interest rate. And then every time I sold a lot, then I would give him that money, except for maybe a couple thousand dollars. And he just kept rolling that through. And after I sold, I think it was three lots. I was also rolling the excess money into the engineering to develop a site plan. So I took that to the town of Scarborough, which is a suburb of um, Portland, got the full approval on a partial on 10 lots. And then from that, I took it to Maine Savings Bank. And at that time, my income was really kicking in gear with the real estate sales as an agent. And then they said, we'll lend you 100%. Just give us the land. So with that, they did, a, I think, the they did a split on the on the cash flows. We were selling the lots for about twenty five grand a piece, and they took, I think, ninety percent of the net on every lot until the loan was paid off. And in the last lots, I uh, kept the cash and then went ahead and finished off the rest of the project. So it was just a cul-de-sac street. But the seller financing was relatively easy because the guy wanted to sell. You ended up selling the lots. Did you work with any of the developers to develop the the land into homes? No, I, at the end, I did partner up with a builder, and we put up a, on the back end of the project, I think we put up four homes ourselves, uh, but on the prior part, I just got the lots approved and then sold them in bulk to a builder with the understanding that I would get the listing, which then I double ended on the listing, so I maximized everything I possibly could with minimal risk. And when was this? What year? This would have been 85, 86, and 87, so a long time ago. But I, and I was a young buck. I had 
nothing to lose. I didn't know anything, nothing. And I just did it. With that experience under your belt, then you went to Phoenix and how'd you, what, what was your approach in Phoenix? In Phoenix, it was different because I pulled out of the marketplace for a while because of the, um, the resolution trust that hit in 91 with the SNL failures. And I was, we were driving, my wife and I at the time were driving in a northern community, Springerville in Arizona here. And I saw some new development. I thought, I can do this again. So I got back into real estate in fixing and flipping with a friend of mine, Dave Keller, here in Phoenix. And we, I don't know, we flipped 15, 20 houses, rehabbed them along the way. And then I, a friend of mine, another friend that I met at the local RIA here said, you've got some development experience. I think there's some opportunity in Tonopah and Buckeye. I said, okay, it's great. Let's go look at it. So we partnered up and we put up, uh, let's see, eight, about 16 homes. And then I decided I did, really didn't want to split the profits with them because I was doing the majority of the work. So I went out on my own and basically then from five, six, and seven until the, everything changed here. I did, I think it was 55 or 60 homes where I'd buy the five-acre parcel, split it, uh, got the approvals, did the septic, the, the shared well, any kind of gravel streets, hired a builder. He put, put up the homes, and then I, I sold them off as, you know, using my agent's license. It was, a, it was a really a fun run. It was a great deal. And what year was this? It was 2005, six and seven. Okay. And uh, and then of course everything with the banks and everything that crashed and that changed that whole dynamic. And even now out in the rural areas where you don't have to where it's the uh, it's relatively easy to get a building permit. It doesn't make sense to build now, which is why I didn't go back to that. In 2008 hit. Then what what was the plan there? At that point in time, I, I got crucified as a lot of people did. And a friend of mine, uh, Jesus Esparza in Albuquerque was doing REO and we had done some flips in Albuquerque, um, with him. And, uh, you know, I said, Jesus, you had to do this building thing. It was great. And he was doing his REO. And then I went back to him and very, very humbled. I said, can you show me how this REO thing works? So I applied and took advantage of my experience. And Fannie Mae was opening up an office in Irvine, California. And they, they, brought me in. I also got involved with the NRBA, which is the National REO Brokers Association. And then from that, it just kind of took off uh, to the point where in 2010, I was carrying 150 listings. One month, I got 65 listings. And that year, I sold 296 as a listing agent. I think I only have four buyer agent sales. I just wasn't into that. And I had to develop a staff of six because of the great influx of properties. But um, that it was stressful at the time, but looking back, it was a fun time also. And then as Dodd-Frank came in, it changed that whole dynamic where they capped the agent on the number of properties they could carry and the distance they could, they would allow them, they would award the assets to based upon where their office was. So that dynamic changed where the REO eventually fell off. Looking back, I should have bought some, but I was just, the, the the cash flow was so wonderful with the uh, brokerage with no risk. I just thought, Let's, I'm just going to run it all the way through. What are you doing differently now that you weren't doing before 2008? Okay. Right now, well, first off, I looked at getting into flipping and whatever uh, in 2013. And I thought the numbers aren't making any sense. The, the spreads weren't there because when I was doing it before, I was accustomed to making 30 grand a, a unit. And I thought, I can't make 30 grand. With the risk, I don't want to do that. So I was introduced to the notes business in February of 13, 
in this case, the non-performing notes, and we I bought several of those, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. But then the numbers got too expensive, and I started looking at the performing. And what I saw was is that I could do that for the rest of my life. So, and then, uh, so I've been in working in the performing note space. I'm also doing so, uh, coaching on seller finance with myself and a, a loan officer. We were uh, we're allowed to teach. We 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 have the credentials to teach seller seller carry seller financing to the agents here in Phoenix through the Arizona Department of Real Estate. But right now, I'm focusing just on notes, showing people how they can use that, buy those notes in their IRA for great passive returns. And then beyond that, I'm brokering them and then keeping the ones that I like. For instance, I'm buying one in Houston where I'm getting a, it's just a short parcel, partial, and I'm getting a 32% yield on it. So it's no risk using the right due diligence and you just, it's building a long-term cash flow. How many notes have you purchased? I've purchased 25 notes. I haven't bought a lot. I'm not a big player. Uh, I'm cautious about what I do because I got caught so short in those seven. Um, and I'm just doing it slowly. There's no rush. Of those 25, have there been any that haven't gone according to plan? Of course. What I found on non-performing is, you know, initially we were buying about 20 or 30 cents. And 30 cents, as it turns out, was probably pushing it of value. Now they're marketing at 40% of unpaid principal balance. And what we found was is that, and these were not just, they, I did not bought anything non-performing in Arizona. They were all in Indiana, Ohio, and in uh, Pennsylvania. And then I've worked out a portfolio for a friend of mine in Tennessee, Georgia, Birmingham, and I can't remember the other states. But what he found was is that you're buying these, Vacant properties. If they're in the Midwest, they're going to be exposed to the freezing, which then they have a basement. Now, when pipes freeze, what happens? The basement floods. When the basement floods, the furnaces blow out, the hot water heater blows out. Nobody knows about it. Then you get into the summer months, and then you get mold. So a lot of those unknowns, no matter who you have with boots on the ground, it's really hard to figure that out. Oh, and by the way, there's some unpaid taxes. So the property that I bought in Goshen, Indiana, was a duplex. And I got a deed in blue. It was a bankruptcy. It was all good. Then you got to hire contractors. Well, you're hiring contractors that you don't know about. Coming from out of state, you've got a target on your forehead. That being, there's a sucker. <laughs> so they, <laughs> unless you plan on going back and forth, which other people have, and, but on a large scale, it um, the one-offs make it very, very challenging at best. And then you hire the rental companies. Well, they're not, not what you're accustomed to here. So whether it be the rehab, whether it be not knowing what you're getting into, whether it be the unpaid taxes or the taxes that accrue in Pittsburgh, just the sheriff's sale in Allegheny County, in addition to the, to the attorney's fees, is $2,500. Oh, and by the way, if there are some unpaid taxes, you pay those. That's okay. But they don't book those out until three months later. So you go to sell the property, and on your closing statement, there's still these same un- unpaid taxes. So on the one we sold recently... There was still $3,000 that we had to hold in escrow until they could let that clear out. It's just a whole different ballgame. And in that whole geographic belt, there's a great amount of entitlement. The people feel entitled there. So I don't want to go too political on that, but it's just a totally different game with the unknowns. Each house is an, each note was an education in itself. How do you mitigate some of those risks? And you can pick any number of them that you want to you talk about. Okay. 
number one, you on the title, you want to pull title. And uh, to that point, then, that will show the taxes and whatever else, but it doesn't expose how the taxing system really works, as in Pennsylvania. So you just do the best you can with that, going to the title company, having them, having them explain that to you. In looking at those properties initially, you'll call up an REO agent, have them do a run, go by and suggest that they cautiously try to get inside the property and at least get some eyes and ears on uh, eyes and uh, eyes on that, get some good pictures. Make sure you put forced place insurance on to cover you for theft and fire and whatever else. Getting a servicing company that really does do what they're supposed to do and bill you when they're supposed to bill you instead of a year and a half later and say, oh, by the way you owe, oh, we just forgot to bill you. Getting a good REO agent on the resale, one that you can trust and don't just try to inflate the values. Checking for crime in the area as best as you can with the various websites that are out there. Checking demographics. For instance, in Pittsburgh, you look at the pictures and they look, oh my gosh, they're great. Like, Joe, and you're in Cincinnati, and I grew up in Bridgetown, if you know where that is. Well, there were similar neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, and I thought, oh, this is all good stuff. Well, you find out that, well, the demographics have changed, and due to the demographics, you're capped on values when you, when you come out of it. So, therefore, your anticipated profit is not what you think it's going to be. So, it's just a matter of bouncing ideas off of as many people as possible and running with it. And it's, it's just, you do what you can. And you work it through, and sometimes you hit on run, and sometimes you don't. It's just you have to play the numbers. You said get a servicing company that bills you when they say they're going to bill you. What does a servicing company do? A servicing company, when the note is a non-performing, they book it. They send out the letters to the borrower saying you owe X number of dollars, and we're willing to do a deed in lieu, or or we're we're willing to do a mod, or whatever that might be. They can or can't make the calls depending. There's a company out of New Jersey called Madison Management. They charge $80 a month, and they do diligently make a phone call to the borrower and track it that way. If they don't do any phone calls, typically the servicing company charges $20 a month. But you just have to have, place that note with them uh, to follow the RESPA guidelines and, and help send out the hello letter, the goodbye letter to the borrower in terms of you know where the note is now housed or where it's being serviced at. So it's right now I own some performing notes. The servicing company is collecting from the payer. They're escrowing for the taxes and the insurance, and then every month they send me a check. And then when when the taxes and the insurance are due, they'll disperse those funds. How do groups, companies, hedge funds buy pools of notes and do that laundry list of due diligence on each one of them? A lot of times they go on the averages. But initially, they'll call up an REO agent in a given area and say, would you do a drive-by and give us a BPO, broker price opinion on value? And they probably, they're just going on the law of averages. Some are going to be good and some are going to be bad. As an example, Fannie, Freddie, and HUD have been selling a lot of non-performing pools, $10 million and up, and they're getting 70 to $0.75 cents in a dollar. And I was shocked. And I said, how can you justify that? And their answer was, well, there's some in there that are really good, so the law of averages make it right. And I'm thinking, well, that's suicide because you don't, you really don't know what you're buying because it's a totally a pig in the poke. You know, you're buying them blindly. As far as the servicing, they probably have put set up their own servicing company, or there's others such as Halo. They will take large pools and they'll do all that servicing for them, but that's, that gets to be very expensive. So for the hedges, they have to set up the whole infrastructure to handle all this themselves, and then they do the work out that way too. 
Dave, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Right now, it would be sit back and wait. Let the economy do its spin. We're running in a 10-year cycle. We're paralleling five and six. Wait and take advantage of the next down slot and you'll make a bundle. And by wait, what should we be doing while we wait? Be conservative. Look for individual opportunities. Watch the economy, and if things change, then jump in. But by wait, so I'm doing notes right now. I'm waiting. I'll still do them forever. But when things change, I'll jump in and use my experience to help people, which will help me. Looking, I'm So you're looking for opportunities as things change. But wait is just be observant. Learn all that you can. Uh, network as much as you can. And when it's time, then start calling in the cards and putting them all in play. So you think around, you said we're in year five or six of a 10-year cycle. So you're thinking around 2020, uh economy's going to take a downturn? No, I think you're, we're, if a seven-year cycle would put it from 2008 to 2015. So it, I would say by the end of the middle of next year, end of next year, we're going to see some major changes. There's going to be a lot of people caught without a chair. and They're going to be hurt. Specifically, what do you think is going to happen in terms of the economy? If you follow Harry Dent and some of the others, I see the market dropping 20 to 30%. When I say the market, I mean the real estate market. And what are the factors that are involved in that? Well, look at the world debt. Look at the U.S. debt. Just the cost of money. Banks really aren't that healthy. They're embellishing their balance sheets. A lot of the old debts were moved offshore. Uh, there's a book by, uh, called by Jillian Tate or Jillian Tent called The Fool's Goal. It talks about all that. So that what you see on the surface is not real. Employment, where it is, it's maybe a little bit better, but it's all the lower-paying jobs. The prices of homes are going up, but people can't really afford them where they are. It's, so negative creates positive. It's all balanced out. So I'm not being negative. I'm just looking for the positive, which will, or the, the negative in the cycle, which will be a positive for the investor. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. That does. That helps out. Um, so you're saying in what about a year from now? I'm saying this time next year, it's going to be very interesting. And for me, going back to 07, I don't want to go for 11 months with no money, which is what it was in 07 when the building crashed. But I, I just see a lot of things changing in the not too distant future. And there are other, I'm going to call them gray hairs like myself here in Phoenix that are very, very seasoned and experienced investors that see the same thing and they're just waiting. On that note, the ominous note, we'll go into the best ever lightning round. You ready? Go ahead. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Okay, here's a no-brainer. Since you're a real estate entrepreneur, you know that selecting a health insurance plan is a real pain and dealing with the whole process is a pain. That's why I've partnered up with Stride Health, and they make the whole process really easy, and they have a personal concierge service for you to help you out. They've got a fancy algorithm that helps find the right health plan just for you, and on average, they can save you 400 bucks a year, and it only takes 10 minutes. Go to stridehealth.com forward slash best ever that's s-t-r-i-d-e-h-e-a-l-t-h dot com forward slash best ever all right dave best ever book you've read warren buffett the uh was the white-haired guy you know he, he just wrote one that was really really good in terms of what he did with his background and how he how he, how he grew his business i have a lot of respect for him do you remember the name of it 
got on the shelf. I think it's just called a snowball. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? You might laugh at this, the Amway business. Phenomenal personal growth. What'd you learn from it? Dealing with people, dealing with adversity, just dealing with personal challenges with the with the savings and loan crashing like it did. Just resilience, but the interaction with other people, that was just incredible. How to read people, because everything's a people business no matter what you do. It, 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 I could not quantify how, how much that helped me. Best ever deal you've done? I'll give you two. One is the subdivision in Maine, and the other one was the building and developing um, here in Phoenix. Subdivision in Maine, and they, I don't know, 350000 bucks, $400,000 in a very, very short period of time. The building and developing here, I was, at the end, I was making $100,000 a house. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? I'm, well, the, the performing notes I'm looking at very, very fondly because I can see replicating my flipping or, or my brokerage that I did with the REO. But I'm really looking forward to the subject twos that are coming up down the road where people have to have, you have to get out and you can assume their mortgages. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Right now, I have some medical challenges, and my goal is to share that with other people. In this case, I was diagnosed with prostate. It's a positive. I'm learning so much about health, and health is so important. And without your health, you have nothing. So I'm, my model now is I have not given a lot back. I'm going to be giving back and sharing on that to help other people so they can be, uh, be, react, be you know, reactionary instead of, or, or being positive instead of negative about it. Well, thoughts are with you and your family and, and your recovery on that. Oh, and I'm fine on that. I mean, I'm totally good. But it's just I can help other people with what I'm learning. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Building a house on the wrong lot where I didn't do a survey. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it was out in the middle of the desert. I got a survey. They did it wrong. And they said, yep, this is the lot that you own. So I put the house up. Turned out it was literally on the wrong lot. <laughs> I didn't own it. Yeah. So I, I negotiated out. It all worked out fine. But that was tough. Was the lot owner happy because you built them a house? Sure. He got a house out of it. And, I, you know, it worked out for me, too. But it was a joke. It was incredibly embarrassing. It is what it is. You learn. <laughs> How did that conversation go when you first told the owner of the other lot that they have a house now? Well, he told me. And then I had to get the, we got the attorneys involved, and we had to negotiate it out. So, you know, he, he eventually sold it, and I got a piece of it. He got a piece of it. Um, it was okay, but it was extremely embarrassing. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I got a red face right now. <laughs> you know, you learn. It is what it, every, every day is a learning experience. Oh, my God, that's funny. What were the terms of the agreement whenever the dust settled? Well, number one, I got the lot that he owned, which was next door. And number two, when the house was eventually sold, we split the profits. Okay. Did you keep the lot that you originally owned? Well, no, that's where the house was on, that we built it on. Well... Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, the house that we that I got, that, that, I, that I built on... You thought on, you were building on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other one I built on again and sold that. Okay. What's the best place for the best ever listeners to reach you? The best place would be two. They can call me directly at 480-763-8376, or they can email me at Dave at capstonecapitalusa.com and go to the website and check that out. And what's the website URL? capstonecapitalusa.com. Well, Dave, thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners and myself and talking about your eclectic experience that you've had in real estate from starting as a landscape contractor, buying some homes, uh, seven over a three-year period in Cincinnati, going to Portland, 
main and uh, doing the development where you're you bought 20 acres with 2% FHA financing on five of the acres and then the rest was seller financing where you basically paid the seller a portion of your proceeds once you sold a lot as well as a little bit of interest on top of that and then had the rest free and clear once uh, once you paid the seller off and then talking about your experience in Phoenix and um, you know the some of them good some some not so good uh, you, <laughs> my face is red too from that last story where you built a house on the wrong lot and I love that and then talking about the notes where you see that as a, a, a really good source of income and the, the different ways you can mitigate risk in notes like make sure you pull the title call the REO agent and suggest they get inside the property or at least um, some eyes on the property make sure you've got the right insurance and the right servicing company that's overseeing the the process a good REO agent on the resale checking for crime checking demographics making sure that you're very familiar with the area and then you're also forecast for where we're at and where we're headed you're uh, sitting back and waiting you're still active but you're you're anticipating something larger happening where it's going to be a good market to be an investor who can look at more distressed property because you, you see the, the market coming coming down 20 to 30 percent in the near future so thanks so much for being on the show is there anything else you want to mention to the best ever listeners before we sign off it's all fun it's all good even the bad is good it's all fun it just it's just it's all positive awesome well thanks so much for being on the show and hope you have a best ever week okay thank you